I always begin these Reformation Day sermons with the same slide. And uh, there's 13, by the way, 13 of these previously already online. Uh, They're all available on our website, and I think the last four years are available on our YouTube channel. You can hit the playlist and and just work your way through if you want. You can hit double time, and you can cut the time in half and just cruise right through them. But I would encourage you, get to know these men. Get to know them. And there's such value, so much strength that can be found by looking back. So that's where we begin, is knowing our past equips our present and it shapes our future. When we look back and discover how the Lord has worked through faithful men and women of old, we are strengthened with that kind of example and and really inspired to be faithful in the present. And then as we think about the years ahead, like think of, of what may be awaiting for us. We don't know what is coming, but we need to stand strong. We need to be resolved to, to hold faithful to the Word of God. And so I think it's so important. And, and obviously, the, the, if you're ignorant about the past, you're doomed to make the same mistakes of the past. But on a more positive note, you can also benefit from the, the successes, from the places where men and women got things right. And uh, there's so much to learn there. So I noticed in 2010, where, when our church was going through an especially difficult time, there was a lot of division. I, I realized that Good Shepherd Bible Church did not have a good sense of church history. In fact, we were making the same theological errors of the past. And so I set out in 2010 to preach through a list of 38 uh, shapers of our faith, reformers. These are men who preached the word faithfully. Uh, these are thinkers, writers, professors, uh, hymn writers, uh, pioneer missionaries, men upon whose shoulders we stand today as we gather for worship. We benefit from these men every time we do the work of ministry. And so um, we are 13 years in. This is the 14th year uh, in this work. John Wycliffe is in front of us today. Am I wrong on that? This is the 13th year? Something like that. So uh, in any case, you can find all of these previous ones that are darker shaded. And if the Lord tarries, um, I will be 71 when I preach my final Reformation Day sermon Um, I'm kind of hoping he comes back before then, honestly. But uh, that's where we're headed. Today, John Wycliffe. We're going to be looking at his life. I want to give you a little bit of an overview of church history. I found Stephen Lawson very helpful with this. This is how he put it, and it's, it's helpful to see what we're talking about here. So in the first century, the church was formed, established by Christ himself, the head of the church, as he commissioned his apostles to go out. The church began, right? And really was established in strength as the apostles went out, the word uh, was fulfilled, and then the canon was completed. And so you have a church with the word uh, and, and a foundation built upon Christ and the apostles. The second through the sixth, uh, through the fifth century, the church was conformed. And, and that is, in a sense, to say that. Now we had to make sure that that what we believe and what we do as a church is consistent with the Word of God, identified and and set forward. So there was a lot of work done early on in the early church to confront heresy, 
the Council of Nicaea in, in the 4th century um, AD was significant for us and, and many other points along the way. So church fathers leading all the way up to Augustine, um, that, that was a, a period where the church was, was thriving and, and really finding its conformation with Scripture. But then, <laughs> in the 6th century, and tracking for a thousand years, this is hard to fathom, there fell what, what historians even refer to as the Dark Ages. The, these were dark years of corruption, years of compromise, um, when I would say the church was deformed by the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the scriptures were largely lost. The gospel was largely um, avoided and, and completely just permeated with error and falsehood. Um, we'll say more about that. You'll see how horrible things were during these years. And then by God's grace in the 16th century, Reformation began. God raised up mighty men to take a stand and say, enough already. We need to return to the authoritative Word of God. And that is where we find ourselves today, always reforming. Where to? To the Word. Come back to the Word. And the call in our day is, is consistent. There are all kinds of mishandlings of truth, errors of doctrine, Terrible practices taking place in churches around the world today, and the call is semper reformanda, always reforming. Let's stick to the Word of God in what we believe and in how we live that out, both as individuals and in the life of the church. So when I say Reformation Sunday, that's the historical sense of what I mean by that. We are reforming just as it began in earnest back in the 16th century with Martin Luther. Give you a little glimpse of how this went down. Uh, Johann Tetzel in 1502 uh, to about 1518 when he died was sent out by the, the Roman Catholic Church to raise funds. Now, uh, there were other sources of funding, but largely they were looking to, to leverage the, the finances that were being raised uh, for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. Okay, now this is how they did it. Johann would roll into town, and on the back of his carriage, his wagon, there was a coffer. And he would proclaim this to the commoners of the day. These are poor people. There was, there was no middle class. It was either the haves or the have-nots. And so these people had very little means, but he would proclaim, When the coin in my coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And he was selling forgiveness for a price. And so people, and he would play on their emotions. Just imagine your loved ones who have died. They're in a place called purgatory. By the way, it doesn't exist in the Bible. It is fabricated non-reality. It doesn't exist. There is no purgatory. But he would play this fiddle, and they would be like, oh man, my, my father or my mother or my loved one who died is in purgatory suffering. And so just with an amount of money, I can... Ease their pain. St. Peter's was built. Those stones were laid upon lies. Lies. To this day, you can visit this place, and it's truly magnificent. But I would just say this. The Roman Catholic Church continues this practice of selling indulgences for all kinds of different purposes and means, and it is a lie. It is fabricated falsehoods. 
This is the kind of thing that absolutely stirred Martin Luther up. And so on October 31st, 1517, uh, 506 years ago, Luther went to the, uh, the kind of the bulletin board at the, uh, uh, the castle church in Wittenberg, and he pounded his 95 theses, uh, 95 points of protest, as it were, against the corruption and the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And frankly, it was the shot heard around the world. It kicked off the Protestant Reformation. And honestly, when you think about it, we are protesters. We've been protesting longer than anyone, right? 500 plus years. And the protest continues to this day. It, we are not Roman Catholics. We are Protestants in that way who go back to the Word of God. The five solas that echoed out of this Reformation work um, are captured. This is what we are encouraging our, our kids to memorize and understand. Number one, and, and most important, most significant to establish all the others is sola scriptura. The word of God is the highest authority. Period. That's it. It's the highest authority. We don't recognize as equally authoritative popes or councils or tradition of church or any of that stuff. It's all underneath. Sola scriptura, the word of God, is our authority in all things, the highest authority. And then the doctrines that were recovered. The gospel was lost in these dark ages. And so the doctrines of we are saved by grace, sola gratia, grace alone, that is. We don't, we don't deserve it. There's, there's no merit that, that God looks upon us and says, well, okay, I see that. I'll save you. I, I can see that. You deserve this. No. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, sola fide, not not works of righteousness that, that earn the salvation that we perform. No, it's faith. That faith is a gift of grace. In Christ alone, solus Christus, and to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. These are the five um, special um, kind of expressions of the Reformation as it made its way across and blesses us still today. Now, what I want to do this morning is track back 187 years before that hammer pounded in the 95 Theses. And I want to show you who it was really that Martin Luther owed this work to long before Luther was born. There was a man who was born in 1330 AD. His name is John Wycliffe. He died in 1384. He was, he's known affectionately through church history as the morning star of the Reformation. Who, who saw Venus this morning in the eastern sky? Do you see that? Bright and clear. It was a perfect day for that. The moon was over here and, and the morning star was lighting up the eastern sky. When people think uh, church history, they think John Wycliffe, the morning star. That star that signals the sunrise is coming. It's about to come over the eastern sky. And just a few hundred years later, it truly would in the Protestant Reformation. So let's, uh, let's look at this man, John Wycliffe. I titled the sermon, Return to the Authoritative Word. Now, let me pray before we dive into these verses. Father, we want to say thank you for the blessing that we have received through this man that you raised up 
through his tenacious faithfulness, obedience, his commitment to sola scriptura, to stand on the authority of your word, even in the face of of life-threatening attacks from the church, from the pope. We are grateful for the way that you use this man. We pray as we get to know him that you would strengthen us to the task at hand. Lord, that the generations would look at our obedience and our faithfulness and similarly say, thank you, Lord, that they followed you, that they held to your word and walked faithfully in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. I looked for a passage that would capture the man's life, and it took me a while to identify this, but I think this is the passage that does it. Mark 7, 5 through 9. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, they're asking Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? Okay, now the background on this is that Jesus' disciples were just uh, rolling the grain and eating, and, and they hadn't gone through all of the steps that the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day required. And you've got to understand, these are steps that have been imposed upon Scripture, added to. They're not in the Bible. There's laws for pots and pans. There's laws for this and that. And if you don't do exactly as they had said, you are defiled. Listen to how Jesus responds to this question. He said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, okay? (laughs) Jesus is not playing. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. Now, in your Bibles, I would underline those words especially. Look at the example that our Savior leaves for us. Now, He is God, and His words, even in this moment, would, in, it would be Holy Scripture. But look at his instinct. It is a Bible instinct. He is going to the response. It is written. It is written. It, over and over he goes there. It is written. This people, Isaiah says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, speaking of the Lord. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Jesus then adds, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, doesn't that fit John Wycliffe and the situation he finds himself in? He goes on and he says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And he's not done. He keeps going at him. But for the sake of illustration here, I want that text to just be ringing in our ears. Because really, I think John Wycliffe loved this passage. And it drew strength into him to stand the way he did against men who were doing the exact same thing in the Roman Catholic Church. Tradition. Our authority. We trump the authority of the word. Are you kidding me? And so Wycliffe was right to call them out. Let's journey in here, and I'll introduce you to this man. On the back of your uh, bulletin, you'll find some sermon notes. You can track along and make some notes. There are a few slides that you might just want to snap a picture of as we go because you can't write them that, that fast. Um, so the rise of the Reformation's morning star. In 1330, John Wycliffe was born in Yorkshire, England. That's about 200 miles north of London. 
to a landowning family with a sheep farm. Now, this is big because in this day, again, there, there were the haves and the have-nots, not much in between. Even though they were landowners, they weren't wealthy, wealthy, but this afforded John the ability at 16 to enter into Oxford, which at that time was the most prestigious institution in all of England. And it was a good decision by his parents. He absolutely excelled. This man was a genius. He was a genius. He excelled in his studies. However, just four years later, the Black Plague, like real Black Plague, swept through, killing one-third of Europe's population. I'm talking 25 million died, one out of every three. We have no concept of this kind of experience. In London, 30 to 50% of the population was hauled off and buried. Obviously, classes at Oxford had to be suspended. It was during this time that, that Wycliffe became plagued by what I'm calling death and sin. It was, it was his confrontation with his own mortality, but really asking the questions of the text as he had been studying. What is going on here? What happens if we die in our sins? Where do sinners who die in their sins go? And the answer is the fires of hell. And as he looked around, he knew there were scores of people who were entering the fires of hell every day. This plague drove him to his knees. It was during this time, at age 20, that Wycliffe began to wrestle with his sin and mortality. He searched the scriptures, and God graciously and sovereignly brought him to salvation in Jesus Christ. So he's already at Oxford. He's already studying. He's, a, he's, he's in, in surrounded by the form of religion, but he is not yet saved, and God uses the black death to bring him to life. How our God can work. How is our God sovereign? To save in that way. Who can forgive sins, Wycliffe says? God alone. Trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on His sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified any other way than by His righteousness. Now those words may sound like, oh, of course, to us. But in this day, that was not the message that was going out. The church, nearly all of the preaching, was saying... You can find righteousness in addition to Christ through your works, your performance. You earn grace, which is completely illogical. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. Sola fide began to ring out of this man's soul, and he was saved and set on a course a very different course than those around him. Wycliffe continued to rise through the ranks at Oxford. In 1356, he received his bachelor's degree, and he was so brilliant that he was made a principal over one of the colleges at Oxford already. He, he, he just is advancing through the ranks. In 1361, he finished a master's degree and was ordained as a priest. He began his preaching ministry. In, in addition to his teaching, Wycliffe had a gift for preaching that was immediately recognized, and it was a powerful addition to the, the, the scope, as it were, of his ministry. 
Now, it is important to say, in his heart, the strongest, most prolific gift for Wycliffe was teaching. Teaching. He was a professor at heart. But the Lord used his preaching in incredible ways as he was faithful to the Word of God. From 1366 to 69, he continued to collect degree after degree, becoming known as the leading scholar and intellect in all of England and quite possibly all of Europe at this time. No small thing, given the time in which he found himself. Now, point two, professing with authority. Professing, but with authority. He was a professor at heart, but he was different than other professors at Oxford. In his own words, holy scripture is the highest authority for every believer. It is the standard of faith and the foundation for reform. You can see where this is going. You can see the trajectory of this man's life. Already, he is beginning to point the way. And where does it start? The Word of God. Return to the authority of the Word of God. Wycliffe became known as a champion of God's Word, commending the Bible as the highest authority for the believer. He became such a prolific and riveting professor at Oxford that oftentimes other faculty, these are men of renown who are teaching at the very same time when, when, uh, when Wycliffe was teaching, they would gather and sit in with his students so that they could learn under Wycliffe as well. People were starving for the Word of God. This is just a, a, a testimony to how dark things were at the time. They had not heard this kind of teaching. It was like, how could you lose sight of the Word of God? So much. Most of his adult life was spent teaching God's Word and discipling ministers, raising up ministers at Oxford in various ways. John Wycliffe says, when I came to Oxford nearly 30 years ago, I was enticed by the wisdom of the world. Above everything else, I wanted fame. Listen to those honest words. I wanted men to honor me. But praise be to God who saved my soul and showed me the glories of His Word. I am ready to follow the teachings of Scripture, even unto death if necessary. That's the kind of resolve that's the kind of courage it takes to faithfully stand upon the Word of God in such dark times. Friends, we need that. We need, you need that resolve, my friend. Stand on the Word and let the chips fall where they may. Now, confronting church corruption, you can see how this moves, right? It wasn't that Wycliffe was just a scrapper, a fighter. He wasn't out to try to stir up a fight. He was in the Word, and he was seeing things in the Word and saying, what's going on here? That is not at all what I am reading in the Word of God. we got a problem. And so he did something about it. He stood up, and he began to call out corruption. In 1374, in service of the king, by the way, it was King Edward III who who loved to hear the kind of things that Wycliffe was saying, partly because he didn't like the Pope, okay? So the king's like, I like this guy, right? Let's, let's get him on our team. So in representing the king in a controversy with the Pope in Rome, here's the background, the church in Rome, okay? 
owned one-third of England. A third of the property in England they owned, and by the way, they didn't pay taxes on that. They refused to pay any taxes. But in addition to that, they were telling the king of England that he should be paying taxes to them in Rome. This is a little glimpse of how utterly corrupt the Roman Catholic leadership was at this time. Wycliffe said that England should be able to take land away from corrupt priests and, in addition, not pay tax to Rome. They're their own country. You don't have to pay tax to, it, to the church. This gave him great favor with King Edward III and his powerful younger son, John of Gaunt, who was the true ruler because the king was senile. We know a little something about that. <laughs> Moving on. Wycliffe was appointed royal commissioner, representing the crown in negotiations with other countries. The king also appointed Wycliffe as a pastor of a church near Oxford, where he began preaching um, consistently. And uh, he faithfully preached here until his death. His gift for preaching engaged the common people who were starving for the word of God. I love this. He, he would not bring this uppity, you know, higher intellectual prose to the people. He would just meet them where they were at. Just, here's the word of God. It's for you. He preached the Bible and the glory of Christ. It was unlike anything else being preached in England at this time. Can you imagine what that would have been like to hear him preach? If you had never heard preaching like this? Just, just, just common preaching. little more about his preaching style. It was energetic, it was dynamic, it was forceful, but it also was described as simple and direct. He let, he let it be what it was. He wasn't tiptoeing around, trying to avoid offense. He just laid the word out. If it hits, if it hits you and it offends you, then so be it. That's what you need that day. It was done in love. This contrasted with the flowery, soaring oratory of the day. He also taught pastors, listen to this, to preach through books of the Bible sequentially. Right? Take a book and move through it verse by verse, paying close attention to the immediate context and building the argument of the author, not the pastor, the author of the book, authorial intent, and letting the book speak. He believed that the, most, the Bible most naturally speaks for itself and yields its God-given message best when it is preached in a consecutive manner within its context. It's one of the reasons I am so committed to expositional preaching. Let the Scripture lead the way. Where it goes, we're going to go. And we don't skip verses. We're not going to apologize for the Word of God. Who would we think we are to stand over God's Word and say, well, yeah, Sorry about this. Uh, obviously, this is not what we believe. No, it is God's word, and we are collectively under it together. We have in our day a similar famine for expositional preaching. There needs to be a return to the authoritative word in pulpits both in this county and around the world. Obviously, this is going to lead to hostile opposition and Wycliffe was not making a ton of friends when he was calling out church corruption. 
So he routinely would preach in the royal court of England and in those settings would often call out the Pope and his abuse of power, even at points referring to the sitting Pope as the Antichrist. Which I could see at that time the conclusions being drawn. I would say he is a foreshadow of the one who is to come, not the, but an Antichrist. Continuing today, you've got to know that. Our current Pope continues this long-established tradition of pointing people to himself and away from Christ, sufficient, all-sufficient to save. The authoritative Word of God. In 1377, John Wycliffe received five papal bulls. This is no small thing. One would be significant. Five basically means in this time, you're a dead man. The church kills people back in. Like, like they'll kill you if you call out this kind of stuff. He receives five of them issued against him for heresy. He was ordered to come to Rome for formal examination, but he refused to go, saying the Pope had no authority to summon him. My man. That's good. That's good. Instead, listen to his words. He appeared before the archbishop in London, 200 miles to the south, and he says this, I profess and claim to be, by the grace of God, a sound Christian, and while there is breath in my body, I will speak forth and defend the law of it. I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. In these my conclusions, I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors, the the, the long-standing interpretive guide here, and if my conclusions can be proved to be opposed to the faith, willingly I will retract them. But take me back to the book and show me my error. You see what he's doing? He is shining sola scriptura as he calls out the Pope who's threatening to kill him. 1377, at this point, Wycliffe kind of became a hot potato. Um, he, he was so controversial that the king and, and John of Gaunt backed away. They're like, oh, this guy's getting a little fiery. We're backing off, right? And in addition to that, Oxford did the same. They pulled the rug out from him. No, nope, no. Nope. After all the years he was there, they stepped back as well and withdrew their support. Lesser men at this point would have folded. But Wycliffe stood on the word and the authority of the word, and he kept going. Refused to back down from his biblical convictions. A year later, in 1378, Pope Gregory the Eleventh the, the uh, in Rome condemned Wycliffe as a heretic. Okay? This is, this is, again, very significant. And that means execution. But before he could kill Wycliffe, that pope suddenly died. Once again, the sovereign hand of God to protect and preserve the morning star who is lighting up the dark and showing corruption throughout the church. In 1381, church leaders formally condemned Wycliffe, but he refused to let up. Instead, he doubled down. He published a document titled The Twelve Conclusions that condemned the unbiblical teaching and practice of transubstantiation, a practice, by the way, that continues to this day. The idea that the priest would turn the bread and the wine into the actual body and blood of Christ. This is 
so a, a, such a horrific twisting of the finished work of Christ. It was a, a, a re-sacrificing of Christ, Wycliffe said. A mockery of the once-for-all completed atonement of Christ as declared in the Scriptures. I'll show you just two references. There are others. He, that is Jesus, has no need, like those former Old Testament high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Well, number one, because he has no sin. They had sin. But number two, he did this once for all. His sacrifice is a once-for-all-time sacrifice. It's, it's done. When he says on the cross at 3 p.m., it is finished, that means full atonement. Full atonement. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He is not still on the cross. That's why Roman Catholics will oftentimes have crucifixes with a Christ on the cross still. No, he's not there. His work is done. And our receiving of the Lord's Supper is a commemorative gratitude, uh, obedience to his command to partake of these symbols, the, the remembering of his body lifted up for us, his blood that was shed for us. He called this out, and this really lit some people on fire against him. Now, courage to translate for the common man. It's hard for us to imagine that the church would be so opposed to people having the Word of God in their own language and actually reading it for themselves. And I am still in awe of how many Roman Catholics I've met who have very little interaction with their Bible. Right? Who, who, who am I to read that? <laughs> we, we need the help. We need people who are authoritative right, to, to make this clear to us. Yes, we benefit from teachers and preachers, but friends, the priesthood of believers gives us access. We are given illumination through the Holy Spirit to read and understand and glory in Christ as we read the Scriptures for ourselves. So, all church services in this day and university lectures were in Latin, under Roman Catholic law, not English, Latin. The people spoke English, not Latin. So a lot of times you go to church and you have no idea what is being said. What's the point? Why are we there? If your mind is completely left at the door and you don't know and you can't understand a lot of what's happening, there's nothing happening. In 1380, in spite of this, a crime, by the way, a crime punishable by death, Wycliffe set out to translate the Catholic Latin Bible into English. He says, you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And he looked back to Pentecost when the tongues fell upon, as, as it were tongues of fire, fell upon uh, the disciples, and they heard each in his own language. Note that. And he's saying, who are we to tell the people that they can't handle the Word of God in their native tongue? He believed everyone should have access to the Word of God in their own language and build their lives upon it as their highest authority. You know what was really going on? Is the Roman Catholic Church did not want to be exposed for the corrupt paganism that they were perpetrating upon the people. Basic things like, show me where purgatory shows up at all in the Bible. Where you can sell forgiveness of sins. In here, show me. It's not there. 
Show me where the Pope has authority equal to the Word of God. Show me. They feared that greatly. Wycliffe set out with a group of colleagues. They committed themselves and they went after it. They translated the Word of God and made it available to the masses. Now, this is before Gutenberg's printing press. So it was a painstaking work. Once translated, a copyist would work for like 10 months with a quill to copy one English Bible. And once it was finished, then it would be taken and distributed. Sometimes it would, they would take parts of it and, and send it all over the place because it was so precious and so rare. But this had such an impact. People, for the very first time, were having access to the Word of God and still at the risk of their lives. Wycliffe was the only English Bible the Wycliffe Bible until 1525 when Tyndale, by the way, I, I did a sermon on Tyndale a few years ago, brought a new translation from the original Greek New Testament into English with parts of the Old Testament before he was killed. He never finished the Old Testament work, but it was such a massive explosion of God's Word and the printing press enabled it to go in huge ways, which is why the 16th century is so significant of reform. The people came back to the authoritative word because they had it in unique and, and, and widespread ways. Now, a legacy of Lollards. Legacy of Lollards. This is a fascinating thing to see. It's, it's good for us to think about what this might look like for us in our church as we raise up the younger generation. God raised up hundreds of young men who trained at Oxford under Wycliffe to be sent out across England and Scotland and beyond. They would dress in simple brown robes. Now, why is that even a deal? What, what, what's the point there? Well, because in this time, the clergy, they were the wealthy. They, they would roll in like these prosperity guys with expensive clothes, and, and the have-nots were in view as they would come in. And so these guys go out in simple brown robes. Statement. And they would carry a precious handwritten copy of the English Bible, or often just a few pages because they couldn't afford more. They would preach and sing uh, psalms and hymns of praise as they traveled. Uh, they preached the sole authority of Scripture. The, they proclaimed the exclusive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel that you find in the Word of God. It had been so lost for so long. A thousand years at this point, 800. Wycliffe trained them up to visit the sick and needy after preaching and help them, which endeared them to the people. And uh, the scornful, for, uh, scornful term lollard means mumblers in Dutch. And how this all comes together, the Dutch and the English. And anyway, um, because they were going out to preach the good news, plain and simple, they, they were mocked by the church, hated and opposed by the church leaders. They were banished from churches, and so they would often find themselves preaching outside in the shade of oak trees. Now, to this day, there are some of those oak trees are referred to as gospel oaks because people would gather under these huge oak trees in the shade and hear the gospel preached. What a great legacy. Local priests would hear that they were preaching and would kind of go out there and try to stop them, but the people would circle around the Lollards, and keep the priest at bay so the guy could keep preaching. I love this. Preach the word. Preach the word. 
Now, supernova fearlessness in the darkest night. I think about how he went out. How did this morning star go out? Well, it was a supernova of courage that lit up the sky. 1382, Wycliffe labored with all his might, even fighting through two serious strokes that left him partially immobilized. He, he continued writing with the one hand that still worked after his stroke. It's an incredible thing. There was such war being waged through that, that quill as he would fight the good fight, and those strokes took him down. And then on 1384, uh, on his deathbed, he was visited by many, many friars who hoped to hear him recant. They're coming in, just imagine this. He's on his deathbed, and these guys come in, and they're like, before you die, right? I mean, you know what happens if you're not in, in, in goodwill with us when you die, threatening the fires of hell. Wycliffe would have none of it. Instead, he responds to these friars, I shall not die, right? You hear the echo of Jesus' words, John 11, but live and shall again declare the evil deeds of the friars. <laughs> Isn't that great? They stand up they're like, oh, okay. okay. I guess we'll see ourselves out the door then. To his dying day, he stood for the truth of God's word. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Those verses ring out of these final days for Wycliffe. 1384, at the time of his death, Wycliffe was considered by the monarchy to be a revolutionary who had incited trouble. A loose cannon and a threat to the reputation of Oxford officials. But in reality, he was a faithful and courageous teacher. A preacher who worked until his death to champion the Word of God. Now, 17 years after he died, look at how this, this echo, this legacy of his tenacious faithfulness to the Word of God. In 1401, 17 years after he died, Rome passed a law... On, uh, titled, On the Burning of a Heretic. And they directed it at the Lollards, who would not stop preaching. They're everywhere. They, they look out and they're like, there goes more brown robes. They're just, they're just walking around everywhere, preaching. Many of them were arrested and burned at the stake because they refused to recant. These are our brothers. The, we, we will share forever with them men who... The church killed for preaching the gospel. 24 years later, they were still having problems. Rome passed another law forbidding the reading of a Wycliffe Bible in public or in private. The church persecuted people for reading the Word of God. Imagine this. This is so hard for us to conceive of. Like, can you imagine if you walked in the door and you brought your Bible to church and we're like, what's that? Have you been reading that? Who do you think you are? Reading your Bible? We take your Bible, we arrest you, and quite possibly put you to death. It's crazy. Such was the time. 44 years after his death, <laughs> they can't get rid of this guy. He won't die. 
44 years, Rome digs up, that Rome, when I say Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, they dig up his bones and burn them publicly in an attempt to discredit his teachings. The problem is, is this backfired, greatly backfired. They're like, Who, who's, who's Wycliffe? <laughs> and it brought new attention to his teaching, which spread all the more through England and Europe. Eventually, a hundred years later, it was the teaching of the morning star, John Wycliffe, that reached a man named John Huss, who would then champion this and die for it. And then Huss's teaching echoed down to a man, a young man named Martin Luther. You see the thing? So if Martin Luther is the father of the Reformation, then John Huss would be the grandfather of the Reformation. And John Wycliffe is then the great-grandfather of the Reformation who was all the way over in England, and God sovereignly moved through all of these things long after his death to bring about the shot heard around the world, and here we are today, over 500 years later. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Praise God for what we have. Our response this morning, three things. Number one, praise God for access to the authoritative Word of God. We have this treasure, man. We are so blessed. Do you, do you treasure the gift that you have when you open your Bible in the morning and you can read and understand the Word of God? There are hundreds of of people groups around the world who still don't have that. And here we are, multiple Bibles. Don't let it gather dust. Don't let it sit uh, off to the side, ignored or forgotten about. Get into the book of books. Number two, esteem above all else the authoritative Word of God. Be Bereans. Whoever is in this pulpit, Keep your nose in the book. If you hear something that I say or Pastor Alex or one of the elders say and it's not found in that book and it echoes out and you're like, I'm not sure that I'm seeing that. Help me now, right? Come with questions, right? Don't, don't, don't throw chairs, right? <laughs> you don't have to throw the stool. That, we're going to see that in the movie pretty soon uh, on Friday. It's, it's an epic story. The, the, the lady just stood up and chucked a three-legged stool at the priest. But... Come with questions, right? And it may indeed be that we have spoken out of place, that we have said something wrong. This is good. All of us, together in the Word. We together are under the Word. We esteem it above all else. Live life, number three, according to the authoritative Word of God. It is not just enough to know things. We are called to live in obedience. Trust and obey. Joyful, happy submission to the call and commandments of our Savior and Lord. And embrace of all He teaches in His Word. We don't stand as arbiters of truth and say, you know, I really like that. I, that makes me feel great. I'll take that doctrine. And then in another doctrine say, I really don't like that. I'm, I'm not feeling that. So I'm not going to take that one. No, no. If it's in the book... It's ours, and we are called to embrace it with happy hearts and seek to understand it more.
I want to close this morning with a quote from J.C. Ryle, a man who's on my list toward the end. Listen to what he said about John Wycliffe. The true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the Word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, and all practices. These are the marching orders. Prove all by the Word of God, my friends. Measure all by the Bible. Weigh all in the balance of the Bible. Examine all by the light of the Bible. Test all in the crucible of the Bible. That which can abide the fire of the Bible, receive, hold, believe, and obey. That which cannot abide the the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. This is the standard which Wycliffe raised in England. This is the flag that he nailed to the mast. May it never be lowered. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Almighty God, the one that writes the story, we acknowledge and honor and say thank you to you for the gift of John Wycliffe. Thank you for his obedience, his faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for saving him, for your sustaining grace to strengthen him in the face of such threatening darkness. Thank you for the courage that he showed to stand on your word faithfully, to declare it, to obey it, and to call out those who disobeyed it and held disdain for it. Oh God, we continue to pray that your church would be reformed. There are many this day gathering in practice and in teaching of total error and falsehood. And we pray that by your grace that you would continue this reforming work. Call us constantly back to this authoritative word. May we never wander from your word. Lord, may the generations that follow us thank you for our faithfulness in these times, Lord. Find us faithful. Help us to cling to you and your word. Come what may. I thank you for a church where your word can be preached Without apology or compromise, thank you for these people who light up at the preaching of your word. Oh, may it be all the more in the days to come. For your glory and the furtherment of your kingdom, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.